good to see everyone tonight. We have a wonderful crowd, uh, a large crowd for us on a Wednesday evening, and we're so thankful that you're here and look forward to having a good study in the book of Colossians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading there in verse number 1, and the questions that are before us for consideration, if you don't have them, they are on the back table, but the questions will cover verses 1 through 6. So that's really all we're going to read for an introductory text is we'll read verses 1 through 6 of Colossians chapter 2 and then go into the questions. Paul begins there by saying, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding." to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ." As you have therefore received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Correctly read and barring any mistakes on my part, reads the passages that are before us for a little while this evening. And question number one says, what does the word conflict mean in this verse? And why did Paul have a great conflict for those in Laodicea? First of all, the word conflict is really virtually the same word that is mentioned in the latter part of chapter 1 with the word striving. It really is very similar um, in definition. And it refers to a person of great care and anxiety. And we're talking about the Apostle Paul. He felt great care and he felt great anxiety for those in Colossae and also for those in Laodicea. In fact, Laodicea was the chief city of Phrygia, in the province of Asia, located just south of Hierapolis in the Lycus River Valley. In fact, it was very close to Colossae. And Paul had great concerns for both the Colossian church and also for those in Laodicea. And if you notice in in verse number one, he says, And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh... Chris pointed this out, I think, last time. I remember him saying something about this, that the Apostle Paul did not, was not there as the founding uh, preacher or the founding apostle when the church was established in, Coloss- in Colossae. In fact, that's exactly what he's saying. And I think really by the, using the phraseology here, those that have not seen my face in the flesh prove that Paul did not start the congregation in Colossae And it also proves that he did not start the congregation that is in Laodicea. Now, obviously, there's word got back to Paul, and Paul was deeply concerned for the church in these areas. And what we're going to find throughout the course of these six verses is we're going to notice that there was a line that needed to be drawn between false doctrine, false teaching, and the truth. And this was a congregation that was doing that which is right. They had not drifted from the truth. But there was great opposition that had entered in among them, and they needed to be encouraged, and Paul was greatly concerned. And that's why he said, I have great conflict for you, Colossians, and also for those in Laodicea because of what was going on around that time. So, 
Now, the main warning was this, and this is really the main uh, object of this epistle. It's to warn the Colossians against false teachings of Judaizers and against modern philosophy. You know, I think about modern philosophy. I don't know everything there is to know about modern philosophy in those days. I know about modern philosophy in our day. And really what people oftentimes do is they try to base beliefs on the philosophical reasonings of today. And really that's why there's people that don't recognize absolute truth. They basically say that it is something that's for you and something that's for me and they can be different and that's just fine. And sometimes it's based upon the modern philosophies of the day. The two great oppositions to the truth in this area were those Judaizers that had entered in bringing aspects of the old law to bind on Gentile converts. In fact, that's what we know about this place. We don't know a whole lot about it, but we do know this. They were Gentiles primarily, but entering in among them were Judaizing teachers that had brought in various aspects of the old law. Now, I want to make a point about Judaizers for just a minute. Do you remember when we studied Galatians and the churches or multiple congregations in Galatia? The Judaizing teachers that had brought in various aspects of the old law, like circumcision, wanted to bind on Gentile converts what God had not bound. In fact, I want to make this point, though. The Judaizing teachers were among the church of Christ. They were members of the church. But what they had done is they basically said this, oh, yes. You have to be baptized for the remission of sins in order to be saved, but you have to be circumcised, Gentiles, if you want to remain saved. And therefore, all the opposition of Judaizing teachers brought those pressures in on Gentile converts. So, in this area, though, what do we have? There was a mixture of Judaism, philosophy, and idolatry. And all three of these were things that Paul had to deal with when writing this letter. And that brings us to verse number two. And I'll read the question after I read the verse. So he said that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the fullness of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. The question reads, what is meant by the phrase, to the knowledge of the mystery of God. Well, first of all, I'm going to answer that question in just a second, but I want to make a point here. Look at the connection that Paul gives as he talks about their comfort and he links it together with being knit together in love. And you know, I think that is so powerful and I think that is something that really applies today too. If congregations are knit together in love, and members of the body of Christ are truly knit together. And they have dealings with one another personally and socially. And we have tight-knit relationships. And congregations are knit together in love. Don't you think that it'll help each and every one of us through the trials of life? Great comfort comes when we are able to handle the trials of life. And sometimes that is with needing one another and helping each other through that. And that's what Paul was talking about. One of the aspects of bearing one another's burdens. You know, we bear one another's burdens in a general sense. And we bear one another's burdens, according to Galatians 6, in a specific sense, which helps our brother through the 
um, temptations that would cause them to stumble. So, being knit together in love, he puts that together. In such a state, one scholar said, is a great source of satisfaction. Because if disciples of Christ are bound together, they will be mutual help to each other to meet the trials of life. I thought that was a, a very powerful point that Paul makes that connection. And so let's talk about mystery now. The word mystery, by definition, is something that has always existed but was not yet revealed. Chris did an excellent job pointing out various things that could fall into the category of a mystery or things that it in, in, was in the mind of God but was not made evident or revealed. And there's many things that we could plug in. In a specific sense, though, it's talking about something that deals with the salvation of Gentiles in this passage. And so while it could fall into many categories about the mystery or something that has existed in the mind of God but was not yet revealed, speaking here, it's in reference to verses 26 and 27 of the previous chapter. Let's read that. For the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of his, this, minister, this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, let's just flip back to the book of Ephesians rather quickly and look at Ephesians chapter 3, and we want to read verses 3 through 6 because this is the mystery that Paul was dealing with in Colossians. It's the same thing that he dealt with in Ephesians. So in, in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, Paul said there, How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in few words, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Just incidentally, before we read the next verse, I think this is so powerful because this proves that a person can understand the Word of God. In fact, Paul said this, it was revealed to him by the Spirit in such a way that he was able to write it in such a way that when you, those in Ephesus, read it, they would understand Paul's knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And then he says what it is, which is in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. It had always been the case, it had always been God's plan, that there would be Jew and Gentile alike in one body, the church. And that mystery that Paul was talking about was evident in the mind of God, but not yet revealed, but is now revealed in the church and through the church, the body of Christ. And so that is the mystery that has been uh, revealed. So now we come to verse 3. And verse 3 says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The question is, what is meant by the phrase, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Well, obviously, as this was a continuous letter, and it wasn't broken down into book, chapter, and verse when it was written. It was done by the translators later on. So when we look at verse 3, we find it to be a continuation of verse 2. And verse 1 ends with the words, both of the Father and of Christ, the previous, the previous verse. Now, Paul includes both the name Father and Christ because 
They're both included in the subject. Now, first of all, there's, there's the mystery here. And the, and the subject is the mystery. The mystery existed in the mind of God. It was fulfilled when Jesus shed his blood on the cross and died for the sins of the world. And on the day of Pentecost, when the church was established, then it was fulfilled. And therefore, that mystery is made known through the church. So, the subject in verse 3 does refer to the mystery, obviously. But it also refers to Jesus. In fact, if you look at verse 3, it says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Some translations say, by whom. And obviously, it's not only referring to the mystery, but it's also referring to Jesus. Because all of those things, of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, uh, are in Jesus, are in Christ. And he, be, he becomes that, um, that source. In fact, one scholar said, Paul asserts that all treasures... Stored for safekeeping in Christ in, is in Christ himself. All right. Wisdom and knowledge are specifically mentioned. These words or concept are similar, but they're different. In fact, the word knowledge, according to Thayer, means intelligence or understanding. Wisdom is the application of that knowledge in practice. And so they are very important. Both of them are very important. In fact, you can have all the knowledge in the world. And you can have correct insight of the word of God. You can have all the knowledge of the world and have no wisdom at all to apply it and it's meaningless. So both of them run hand in hand. And by the way, we get knowledge when we study the word of God. And we get wisdom when we ask it of God. And God gives it liberally. Now there's also other ways that we can get wisdom and from a worldly standpoint, and that is when we learn from the experience of others and we learn from our own failings and shortcomings. And when we mess up and we recover and we survive the mess up, we learn wisdom and we learn from that mistake and we move forward. That's true. But what we're talking about is we're talking about things that pertain to salvation. All of that is found in Jesus Christ. So we're talking about from a specific sense, knowledge and wisdom is dealing with salvation. And all of that is in him or in whom, the beginning part of, of the verse, that is Jesus Christ. In Jesus, there's all the knowledge and there's all the wisdom in salvation. It comes from Jesus Christ. Okay, verses 4 and 5. Now this, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Okay, so the question says this. First of all, what was Paul's great concern for them? And I'll just answer that question first. Obviously, his great concern for them is that they remain faithful. Anytime you have great opposition from a spiritual perspective and it's pulling on people that are trying to do that which is right, it obviously generates great concern that those that are members of the body of Christ will remain faithful. So first and foremost, that's in the mind of Paul. His concern for them was that they remain faithful, so he warns them against false teachers. These false teachers used a mixture of philosophy and Judaism 
in such a way as to mislead unsuspecting disciples away from the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. Have you ever heard somebody say that the gospel is so simple or the word of God is so simple or there's something so plain in the word of God and so understandable in the word of God, it takes a preacher to mess it up. And I think that's really true in the world. The gospel is simple. It's the simple gospel. It's easy to understand. And if you have a good and honest heart, the seed of the gospel is planted in that good and honest heart. And you may not know anything else, but you know how to be saved. And then once you start studying the word of God, it is the simple gospel. It's the truth. And it's easy to understand. But when you have people that are, I don't know, of renown, or you have people that are, are great orators, or maybe just people with strong personalities... It can weigh down people that are trying to do what's right and can distort the simple gospel. And that's what was happening. They were doing so in such a way with a mixture of philosophy and Judaism to mislead unsuspecting disciples away from the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. Now, I think there's something that is very sad to me. And that is the unsuspecting part. What about this? What about a man that decides to, that he's going to be a heretic? And he may not just say, I'm going to be a heretic, but he may come with an erroneous position and start leading other people astray by an erroneous position in lieu of or instead of the truth. And by the way, that is the definition of a heretic. It's not somebody that just misunderstood the word of God and taught it wrong by accident. It's talking about somebody that willfully decided to choose an erroneous position, teach the erroneous position, and draw a party or a sect unto himself. That is the definition of a heretic. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you know what happens when a heretic does what he does? There's always an innocent person or innocent people, unsuspecting people that don't know the difference that get led astray. Maybe somebody could say, well, you know, based on the philosophy of modern philosophy and our own modern thinking, you can make it sound, oh, yeah, how could that happen? That's got to be okay. I mean, look at all the good that it's doing. I don't think God's really going to make you stick to that, right? I mean, look at all the wonderful people that are, that, are, that are following such a doctrine or such a false teaching, whatever it might be. That's what happens when a heretic decides to bring in an erroneous position with the purpose of distorting the truth and preaching the error instead of the truth, drawing a party or a sect unto himself. That's exactly what they were doing. A mixture of philosophy and a mixture of Judaism and the unsuspecting members, uh, what uh, Paul was concerned about. Okay. So in verse 5, in verse 5, Paul says, for though I am absent in the flesh. Now, obviously, that meant this. Paul was in prison. So Paul could not be with them presently in the flesh. He said, yet I am with you in spirit. And that word spirit simply means in mind. I am with you in mind. And then he says, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And that comes back to the question. What is meant by the phrase, Rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. 
Well, obviously, the Colossian church had not departed from the faith yet, but they were in danger, and Paul gave the warning because of that. But for the present time, he was very pleased with their excellent devotion to Christ, and he wishes to have them continue in the same status. Obviously, he couldn't be with them bodily, but he was obviously with them in spirit or in mind. And uh, obviously, also, he had remembered some of the things that were said about the church there. Look at chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4. So, obviously, Epaphras could have brought back some great news about what was going on about the Colossian church, even though Paul was not there presently because he was in prison. Colossians 1 and verse 4. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. So, Paul could rejoice in those good things because he had heard that from Epaphras who brought back word of the status of the congregation. So, the phrase rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Two words, order and steadfastness. In fact, in the original origins of these words, they are military. It's a military phraseology. And the word order, by the way, the word order um, comes from a word that literally means orderly condition. And it doesn't mean some set routine to be followed. It's not that he was saying that I've heard of your mechanical progression of things and uh, your routine. That's not what he was saying. It implies that the church in Colossae, though, had some system in its procedure. The same thought is expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 40. Remember what Paul said there. He said, let all things be done decently and in order. Just a little side note about that phrase, and in order. Years ago, there was um, some folks among our, our people that believed in a set order of worship. In fact, where we came from over in Miner's Oaks. There were folks that believed in a set order of worship. And what they had done is they had taken this passage, which says in 1 Corinthians 14 and 40, let all things be done decently and in order, meaning an order, uh, an agenda, an order of worship. But that's not what this word means at all. In fact, it's the same word in our passage as found in 1 Corinthians 14 and 40. And it means it's a military term and it means an orderly array or fashion. So when we come together in worship, for example, there's no chaos. We worship together in an orderly fashion. Paul was saying one of the great things that he had heard about them was their order and their steadfast. So the orderly array or fashion that they were doing something. But then the word steadfast, also a military term, and it means to make firm or firmness according to Thayer. Steadfast. In a military sense, it means to present a solid front to the enemy. Now, obviously, the enemy is the devil. The enemy is the devil and all of its evil influences. And so somebody that is steadfast is somebody that is remaining steadfast, remaining faithful, and they are presenting a solid front to the enemy, which is the devil, and all the evil influences that he brings. So, the Colossian church's faith had remained firm in Christ, but false teachers had attacked the very foundation of their faith. And because of the unrelenting persistence of these, Paul wants to reinforce the solid line 
between sound doctrine and false doctrine. And we have to do that too. We have to draw the line and make bold the line between sound doctrine and false doctrine. And that's what Paul's great concern was. And then he comes to uh, verse 6, which covers question number 5. He said, And you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The question is, how does one walk in Christ Jesus the Lord? Well, first of all, the idea in the phrase to walk means this. It means the same type of phraseology that Jesus said when Jesus said, Ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Now, what Jesus meant back then when he preached that sermon was keep on seeking, keep on asking, and so forth. Keep on longing for, keep on looking. It's a habitual thing, continuation in your life. Continue to do that. That's the same phraseology here. Walking in Christ the Lord means keep on walking. I think sometimes people, the people of God, need encouragement. They know what's right. They know what the truth is. The Colossian brethren knew what the truth was. Those in Laodicea knew what the truth was. But in the midst of all of the uh, false teachers coming in and pulling them aside, they had to do what? They had to be steadfast and put up the front against the enemy. The, the formidable foe of the devil. They had to do that. And they had to keep on walking. I think sometimes we need to just encourage each other to keep on walking. Keep on walking. Keep on remaining steadfast. And encourage one another to do that. That's exactly what he's saying here. The idea means continue to keep on walking. It means to continue to conduct one's daily life in a manner that is fitting for a Christian. So... To walk in Christ is to live a life that is patterned after him. That's what it means to walk in Christ. And that is only by doing God's will. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He also said, if you love me, keep my words. And if you keep my commandments, if you keep my words, you shall abide in my love as I've kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. So what is he telling these brethren? I know that you've got all this opposition. I know you got all this stuff going on. But I've heard about your good order, and I've heard about your steadfastness, and I'm encouraging you to keep on walking and keep on keeping the faith. To receive Jesus Christ the Lord means to obey the gospel. And what he's saying is, since you are a Christian and you've obeyed the gospel, in other words, you didn't just receive Jesus and the blessings of Jesus and there's nothing more for you to do. What he was saying is, in that passage, as you therefore have received Christ the Lord, in other words, you've obeyed the gospel, and he is your Lord and Savior, by the way, sure, but you do that by obedience to the gospel. You've been baptized for the remission of sins. In other words, he could have been saying this too. He could have just said this phraseology, since you became a Christian, and you're a child of God, and you've been washed in the blood of Jesus, then walk um, as you uh, walk in him or a life that is conducive to that relationship. Since a person obeys the gospel and has their sins washed away, they also have the spiritual blessings in Christ. 
So also, in addition to that, connected to this, if you receive the spiritual blessings in Christ, walk as he walked. In other words, spiritual blessings come from obedience. It's all connected. So once you obey the gospel, you have the spiritual blessings in Christ. Walk as he walked. Walk as he walked. And uh, it's all connected. I want to just close with one verse. If you look back at chapter 1 and verse 10. That you may have a walk worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That is a perfect pattern for the walk that we have. And by the way, there's nothing that we can do to be worthy of Jesus. But we can be worthy living a life that is worthy or conducive of being a servant. And that's what we are as a, as a Christian. We are a servant. So our walk is that which is worthy of a servant, a servant of Jesus Christ, growing in the knowledge of God. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.